Hi, this is Mark Rabin. Back in 2012, I did a podcast episode with a psychologist and a family therapist, Robert Moore, PhD. That was episode 153. It's been almost five years since the discussion, but I'm often reminded of what I learned from his books and his advice about small change. So I am republishing this from the archives um, into uh, today's podcast feed. Um, I hope if you're a new listener to the podcast, that you enjoyed this discussion, you can go back and visit um, a lot of the uh, deeper back catalog at leancast.org. So Dr. Moore in this episode talks about how it's human nature for us to be afraid of change as human beings. Uh, instead of lecturing people to be brave, we need to work within our own uh, limitations. How do we avoid the fight or flight instinct and reaction from kicking in? Well, we start by making change small, and that's a key Kaizen insight that Dr. Moore is able to tie to the way our brains work. So um, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can now find a PDF summary of the episode. Um, you can find that uh, by going to leanblog.org slash 153 and following the link to the updated post here from 2017. Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to Podcast 153 for July 24th, 2012. Joining me today is Robert Moore, PhD. He is Director of Behavioral Sciences for the Family Practice Residency Program at Santa Monica UCLA Medical Center, and he's a faculty member with the UCLA School of Medicine. And in this episode, we're talking about an excellent book that he wrote called One Small Step Can Change Your Life, The Kaizen Way. Yes, that's right, Kaizen. And uh, it's a topic near and dear to my heart, of course. And I discovered Professor Moore's book, um, when, Dr. Moore's book, when doing research for uh, our book, Healthcare Kaizen with Joe Schwartz. And um, I blogged about um, the book. There's a review posted. It, I'll link to it here in the show notes at leanblog.org slash 153. And uh, it's really interesting to hear uh, Dr. Moore write about and talk about applying this Kaizen continuous small change approach in the realm of therapy instead of the workplace. And he writes about the brain chemistry that causes people to fear change. This is our, if you will, our reptile brain, um, except when it's small changes. And it's really fascinating stuff. I'm thrilled to have had a chance to talk with him and to share a conversation with you. So for this and all episodes, you can go to leanpodcast.org. Thanks for listening. Bob Moore, thanks for taking time to join us here on the podcast. It's a pleasure, Mark. Can you start by introducing yourself and your professional background for the listeners? Sure. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I work in a setting that's unusual for psychologists because most psychologists are in clinics or offices. And I work in a medical clinic where we train physicians who finished their uh, four years of medical school and are now in three years of training to become family doctors. So I spend about half my time uh, in, in the exam room with the resident, giving them feedback on their communication skills, and then have the opportunity to teach them how to be more effective in their communication. Well, I just wanted to say, you know, from a patient perspective, I think it's great to hear that there's more focus um, being placed on educating clinicians about communication. Um, is, is that becoming more common in healthcare education today? 
Um, there's a couple answers to that. Within the medical school proper, the undergraduate medical school, it's now become quite common, and many medical schools have actually the equivalent of an acting company where they, the, the, resident, the, the medical students get to practice on um, essentially actors that are presenting them with patient challenges, and when they take their board examination, they have to do this in front of what they call standardized patients. So their communication skills is now part of their licensure, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm in family medicine, and family medicine is the only specialty in medicine that requires they have this training. There's someone like me at each of the family medicine programs in the United States. So it's part of that unique specialty. So I'm, I'm really curious how you first got exposed to Kaizen uh, in, from your perspective. You know, we think of um, Kaizen and Lean as being workplace improvement methodologies. You're working with individuals focused on their lives. How, how did you get started with this? Look, in a very roundabout way, because um, given this opportunity I have in family medicine, it presented some unique uh, fascinations and some neat, uh, amazing frustrations because most therapists sit in an office or a clinic waiting for people to create enough pain in their life, run out of excuses, and then they come in kind of late in the process, whereas the average Americans go into the doctor three times a year, three or four times a year, for relatively ordinary kinds of concerns. So here's this amazing opportunity, Mark, to be in an exam room seeing a patient before they get married and create marital problems, before they have children that uh, they have problems with before they uh, become depressed. And yet we had no tools on how to predict um, uh, health in people who were essentially there for brief amounts of time. So long story short, I began collecting studies from around the world on people who were succeeding in their jobs, their health, and relationship over long periods of time. There's about two dozen studies that have followed people anywhere from 15 years to 70 years to see, again, what, what predicts success in all three areas of life, health, relationship, and work. And so one day I was reading the newspaper, and there was a full-page ad for the Toyota brand of Lexus. For the umpteenth year, they had won the J.D. Power Customer Satisfaction Award. And I thought, well, I had thought went through my mind, well, maybe metaphorically there's something about building a high-quality car consistently year after year that metaphorically I might be able to... Uh, apply to human behavior, <laughs> excuse me. And so I started to look at the history of um, Toyota and Lexus, and there's a book called The Machine That Changed the World, I think by a man named Womack, if I remember right. I thought it would be about computers, but as you probably know, it's about automobiles. And in it, he talks about Dr. Edward Deming and the idea of small steps that they introduced in manufacturing in World War II. And that was then Dr. Deming and the concepts of small steps to improve quality products uh, was incorporated into the whole Japanese philosophy uh, embraced by Toyota, etc. So that was how I got int introduced to Kaizen was through trying to see metaphorically if there was something about a quality car I could apply to a quality life. How did you get started with applying these ideas then with, with patients in the realm of therapy? Sure. Um, in, in the clinic in which I work, our major focus is, of course, in, in terms of physical health. And, and so that, that was my first interest, although I'll, I'll take you through a little bit of the research on the couple's work, which has even more dramatic impacts for, for Kaizen. Um, because we see a lot of people who, like, like a lot of your listeners, who are leading very busy lives. 
and have very little time to do the kinds of things that we know people need to do in terms of exercising an hour a day, et cetera, et cetera. So we found if we could get people to exercise one minute a day, every single day, all of a sudden we took away all their excuses. Because if I ask you to exercise an hour a day, you've got all kinds of good reasons why uh, you don't have to do that. But if I ask you to exercise in place while you're watching TV one minute a day, then uh, all of a sudden you're developing a habit. Years ago, Mark, before I ever heard of Kaizen, there was this world-famous expert at UCLA giving a two-evening two, two course on cancer pain. And at the end of the night, he said to these cancer uh, patients, I want you all to go home and meditate for one minute. So I waited for all these um, patients to leave, and I went up to the professor and said, Sir, why are you asking them to meditate for one minute? Not enough to do them any good. He patiently said to me, How old is med meditation? I said, Thousands of years old. He responded, Correct. It's a good chance everybody in this room has heard of it before tonight. Those who like the idea have already found a book or a teacher and are doing it. For the rest of the people in this room, meditation is the worst idea they ever heard of. I'd rather they go home and meditate for one minute than not meditate for 30. They may discover they like it, they may forget to stop, which is what the research argues. There was a study done in Seattle where they looked at people who, over the course of an entire week, gardened or walked for just an hour. That's a total in the whole week, which, which is about 450 calories and lowered their risk of, of cardiac death by 70%. A study in the Journal of, of Clinical Nutrition a couple of years ago we found talked about the fact if you exercise three minutes at a time for a total of 30 minutes a day, but just three minutes at a time, even climbing steps in your office building, you had the same uh, re reduction in cardiac risk as somebody that was exercising 30 minutes a day. <laughs> the Framingham study, the most uh, famous of the prospective studies, where in 1984 they began following 5,200 people, and they found if you took one pound off a year for four years, that is, again, four pounds total, and kept it off, you reduced your risk of hypertension by 25%. My favorite study, and then we'll uh, I'll talk a little bit about the couples research, was done at the Mayo Clinic, where they developed essentially a pedometer that you wore. They called the data logging underwear. <laughs> and they looked at, yeah, you have to see it to believe it. And, and they, look, they look at people who uh, never set foot in a health club, but who were, in, in spite of that, either thin or quite heavy. And what they found from these, the, the data logging underwear, is people who are thin simply move more during the day. On an escalator, they walked up instead of just standing there motionless. In their office, they would pace when they were on the phone. And when they went to the Costco lot, they'd park at the very end instead of driving around uh, trying to find a space close to the door. They simply moved more, which added up to, on average, 300 calories a day and an average of 30 to 40 pounds of weight loss in, the, in a year. So I, I, I'll give you some more of these studies if you want, but again, in our 70-millimeter Dolby supersized extreme makeover culture, it's just hard to believe these small steps can have such profound influence on the body. So before moving on, you know, talking about relationships and couples, there was a story in the book where you talk about uh, a patient, a woman, I think, um, who you got to start exercising one minute a day, and those small steps really got her going to be able to take on a more serious um, activity, building that new habit. Can you tell us more, um, tell the listeners more of the details of uh, that great story? Sure. 
it um, that the inspiration to work with this woman came out of a study that was done in Pittsburgh and then in Ireland, in which they went into a huge high-rise building. They went to the fourth floor and found a dozen people that hadn't exercised since high school, and they give this they gave this group a lifetime membership to the fancy health club across the street. They gave them a lifetime member, or uh, they, they 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 gave them a gift certificate for their trainer and another gift certificate for workout clothes. Um, they went to the 10th or 11th floor of that same building, identified another dozen people in a different business who hadn't exercised since high school. All they asked them to do on Monday was go into the stairwell of the building, go up one flight of stairs, back to their floor, back to the desk, back to work. Tuesday, go into the same stairwell, go up one flight, add a single step, back to your floor, back to your desk. You get the idea. Every day of the work week, adding one step to this ridiculous regimen. Well, when they came back one year, three years, five years later, which group do you think is exercising better, better weight loss, cardiovascular fitness, lower cholesterol? Of course, the steppers. So what we asked this woman to do, she was a woman that worked a full-time job, had a mother in a, in a uh, nursing home that she um, wanted to visit at night. She had two small children. So the kind of busy lives that, again, many of your listeners have. And so asking her to go to the gym or follow the American Heart Association recommendations of 30 to 45 minutes, five to seven days a week. She just looked at us blankly. But if I asked her to exercise in front of the TV set, moving as fast as she can, walking in place one minute a day, could she do that? And, of course, her face lit up. Of course I can do that. And what you're counting on is if you do something one minute a day, After at first, of course, it's annoying, then it becomes tolerable, and then you develop a habit. And what we were counting on is like with that professor with the, the people with the meditation is that at a certain point you assume they're going to forget to stop. And you've developed a habit. So, and I'm sure listeners are curious, I mean, how do we take these, what we think of probably as, as workplace improvement ideas, of this Kaizen, and apply it to our relationships? Um, the best research we have on marriage is by a, a gentleman named Dr. John Gottman, who's a psychologist previously with the University of Washington and now at the Gottman Institute. What makes this work so extraordinary, Mark, is he's studied about 10,000 couples over the last two decades, and he's a scientist. He's not really a clinician. He can sit you and a fiancé down for a 15-minute interview or less, predict the likelihood you'll be happily married four years later versus miserable or divorced, ready for this, with 93% accuracy. Now, basically, if I can summarize this, research for you, it boils down to two things. One was how couples deal with conflict, which is not surprising, but some of what he found was common sense, some of it was quite uncommon. The second thing he found is positive attention outweighed negative on a daily basis by five to one when the relationship wasn't going well, 20 to one on the days when it was. Now what's Hutsey talking about? 20 candlelight dinners, 20 trips to the movies, you couldn't physically accomplish it. It turns out to be small, trivial moments. When your mate calls you during the day, does your voice light up when you realize it's them? Do you put down the remote control of the newspaper, the telephone, when they walk through the door? If they went to the dentist this morning, do you remember to ask them about it tonight? If you said you were going to be home at 6, are you home or calling to say you've been delayed? Those small, trivial moments accumulating throughout the day were more predictive of success than anything else the couple could do. So it's probably the best example of Kaizen in relationship I can think of. 
So what we ask people to do who are in counseling, for example, is usually they're going around during the day rehearsing all the arguments they had last night or the ones they anticipate today. We ask them to go through the day thinking one or two positive things about their mate. And we have evidence that changes your brain chemistry and it certainly changes how you walk through the door that night. Now, one other thing you write about in the book, there's a lot of really interesting brain science about um, how people react to change. Um, a lot of times people complain that, you know, the people in the workplace, their employees or, or others are resistant to change or that they hate change. Um, what is it about our brains that, uh, that, that impacts the way uh, people react in these settings? Sure. Um, the thing that makes the human brain so complicated is that we literally have three separate brains in our head. And so the bottom of your head, uh, between uh, the bottom of the head and the neck, is a place called the brain stem. And it's the oldest part of the brain. It, in us, we call it the reptilian brain because from the outside, it looks like the whole brain of an alligator. And it does very basic things, wakes you up, puts you to sleep, reminds the heart to beat. Sitting on top of it about the size of your fist is the midbrain, also called mammalian brain because we share the brain in general with all mammals. And it's where all the emotions live and the survival mechanism in the brain lives, which we'll come back and talk about. And then again, to add to the complexity, we have the cortex, which is wrapped around the midbrain. And with it, we're all thinking, reasoning, logic, culture, civilization, all the magnificence of being human occurs there. Now, in the bottom of the midbrain is a place called the amygdala. It's about the size of an almond. And the amygdala is where something called the fight-or-flight response lives. It's basically what we used to call fear. They now call stress. <laughs> but it's basically the fear mechanism in the body so that when you stepped out of your cave in the morning with a body that didn't see well or smell well, couldn't run fast, you, the first thing you did is you became afraid because there were lots of animals that, out there that used to feed on us. So anytime you enter a new situation, fear shows up. And so if somebody says, well, it's time to join the gym, or a doctor says you have diabetes, you're going to have to change your lifestyle, or you're trying to do anything new in your life that triggers the amygdala. <laughs> and so uh, the, the, what, the way Kaizen works, we think, in part, is that it, because you're making steps that are so ridiculously small, like exercising one minute a day, it doesn't stir up any fear. So the amygdala stays quiet. And through the sheer repetition of simple steps, you're building in a habit. The example I love to give in front of a class is I'll draw two golden arches and say, what does this remind you of? And, of course, everybody in the world gives you the same answer, McDonald's. Now, some of the people in this audience have never set foot in a McDonald's, wouldn't eat a McDonald's, but they've shown you that logo in 15 or 30-second commercials over and over and over again. Ask an hour, uh, watch an hour of Law and Order, you see the same commercial four or five times. Because the point of the commercial is not to entertain you, it's to build the image and the product into your mind. And repetition, of course, is the best way to do that. So anytime we can get people to do something positive for just 15, 30 seconds at a time, um, it, it keeps the amygdala quiet and then the brain learns a new habit. The bigger the steps you want to take in life, the more it triggers, triggers fear, that is the amygdala, and the more you start going into resistance. So that's part of the, the trick of Kaizen is the small repetitive steps that eliminate fear and allow the brain to start building positive habits. So then how do we you know, take these ideas and, and what, what are your experiences or, or thoughts about how to apply this to change and, and trying to lead change and improvement back in the workplace now? Sure. 
the 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 really important key to to kaizen and it's not always something that's that's made clear because people think of it as um small steps um and with the hope of of course reducing the the um, price of the product etc cetera, etc cetera. but kaizen really has two ingredients it's looking for very very small incremental steps um, but it's also the, the, every small step, as, they, as Deming talked about, as Toyota talked about, has to be in the service to the customer. That it isn't just kind of we re, can we uh, reduce the size of the package without the customer uh, being able to notice. That's a small step, obviously, but there's nothing about that that serves the customer. So it's really serve, anything that is, a, is considered waste that doesn't serve the customer has to leave. Um, so it's that service component that isn't always as emphasized. Um, the second is a few other points. One is that um, when you look at the history of innovation, what you find much, to, at least was to, to our surprise, our research team, is that it was very rare that some big, bold step was responsible for the innovation, whether you look at the invention of the microwave, you look at how uh, Walt Disney got the idea for Disneyland, the credit card, I can give you multiple examples each of the, these things were some small, trivial moment that somebody got intrigued with. The guy that invented barcodes, which, as you know, have revolutionized so many industries, uh, was a guy that was trying to help grocery stores with their checkout process, could not figure out what to do. Feeling frustrated one day, he goes off to the beach, feeling very sorry for himself, sticking his hand in the sand with, uh, out of frustration, took his hand out of the sand, saw the sand sticking to the grooves on his fingers, and got the idea for barcodes. I can give you two, two dozen more examples because we have this myth in organizational creativity that the bigger, if you want a big result, you want an innovative result, you've got to take big, bold, high-risk steps. When there's no evidence that, that, that that's the case, often somebody looking at something that at the time seems small and trivial turned out to be something large and, and profound. So um, well, the, other, the other thing that we see in hospitals all the time is, as you pointed out quite correctly, uh, every hospital in the country is now investing millions and as a, as a society billions of dollars in electronic health records. And there's many advantages to them. But in terms of life-saving, if we could get everyone in the hospital to wash their hands as regularly as they need to, we would save more lives. And so it's much easier to get people to take on the innovative process of electronic health records uh, and spend the vast fortune that that takes uh, as opposed to getting people to do the mundane thing of washing their hands. When they int int introduced checklists into the surgery suite, four or five items that the physician and nurse would check off before starting an operation, they reduced infections sometimes to zero and saved millions of dollars. But the resistance to getting people to use a checklist in the operating room was huge. So we tend to accept big steps sometimes more than small ones, but often not to our advantage. So can we use some of these Kaizen principles? I mean, if we think about trying to improve something, let's say like hand washing, um, rather than making a jump to 100% immediately, uh, are there some small steps that we can try to take um, to allow people to build new habits and, and, and help get closer to or get to that 100% point eventually? Yeah, um, in fact, there's a, a, a couple wonderful books that um, look at this whole idea of how to apply small steps in social environments. One's called Switch, and the other's called Drive. 
Uh, one of the examples they use, I forget which of those books, to say the truth, because they're both so extraordinarily uh, well-written, is um, where they put up signs in the hospital, either be sure to wash your hands, or another part of the hospital, they put up sign, uh, please help your patients wash your hands before and after, and the, and the, the plea to do it for the patients uh, tripled the rate of participation in hand washing. So <laughs> sometimes those those kind of appeals can can be dramatically effective. Well, like you said, that's bringing things back to um, what the patient needs are, as opposed to you know I'm the boss. Uh, exactly. I, I'm going to make you do it because I said so, and then people react and, and they involuntarily <laughs> and say, "Well, who says?" And you know it's understandable where that sort of resistance comes from in, in kind of a traditional uh, top-down command and control environment, wouldn't you say? Exactly. Yeah, with all, all the research argues that um, punishment just doesn't work that well. Because the minute the person punishing you is out of sight, you go back to the old behaviors. Well, again, thanks so much, Bob, for um, talking today. I really recommend everybody go take a look at your book, which is called One Small Step Can Change Your Life, The Kaizen Way. Again, uh, Bob Moore uh, from UCLA, thanks for talking today. It's a real honor. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.